Hello and welcome to the fifth podcast from the fifth show of All Back to Bowie's on the 5th of August. Uh, The sun was out in Edinburgh today and uh, we had a terrific crowd. Um, I think something about 80 or so people Um, and a very, very uh, top, top level panel discussion on the idea of Britain. Um, there's a, there's some fantastic stuff in the in the panel uh, from Neil Asherson. I think the provocation from David Torrance is really thoughtful and, and interesting. And from a Bowie's point of view, it's lovely to um, have uh, a more indie sceptic per- perspective. Uh, there's also a poem from Jim poems from Jim Monaghan and um, he he really brought the audience um, to light they were delighted with those and a personal highlight for me was um, Drew Wright of, of Wounded Knee being um, giving a, a performance of uh, the Hamish Henderson Freedom Kamoyi at the end so there's some real uh, highlights in the show so I hope you uh, enjoy it so uh, sit back and enjoy uh, Bevan tried to save the nation whatever happened to the idea of Britain Hello everyone and welcome thanks for coming to today's show which is Bevan called Bevan tried to change the nation whatever happened to the idea of Britain. Thank you all for taking up David's kind offer for coming to stay with him in his lovely guest yurt on the roof of his penthouse suite in uh, uh, Manhattan. It's really very nice. He won't be here today, but, you know, we can entertain ourselves, right? Um, So uh, a few house rules, well, one house rule, really, before we start, and that is, for the duration of the show today, no one is going to be asked the question, which way are you voting on September the 18th? You can let us know, anyone who's speaking, feel free to offer that information up yourself, but no one will be asked that question. However, there is one question that is really vitally important that I'd like to ask every single person here right now, and that is, is it David Bowie? Or is it David Bowie? (laughs) So, I propose a mini-referendum, and that is, if you think that, yes, it's David Bowie, please, can you raise your hand? Woof! I'm going to say 55. Uh, Can you raise your hand if, no, it's David Bowie? Oh, interesting. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, twenty, twenty-one, twenty-two, twenty-three, twenty-four, twenty-five, twenty-seven, twenty-eight, twenty-eight. So for today's show, it's David Bowie. <laughs> that might change tomorrow. Um, so. That's the vital question out of the way. Um, Every show, we give the audience uh, a wee task to do during the show, and that is to complete a sentence that 
is to do with the theme of the show that day. Um, I hosted one on uh, Sunday there about gender politics in an independent Scotland and the sentence we had to complete that day or the audience had to complete that day was an equal Scotland is. Um, so ed- each day, obviously, the sentence is different. Um, so what I'd like you all to do is um, see if you can get a wee piece of paper. It can be the back of a receipt or the back of a flyer or a train ticket or maybe share it share them about, just get a wee piece of paper and a pen, you can share the pens as well this is a socially democratic Scotland we can pool our resources and um, uh, I'd like you all during the show to have a wee think about how you would finish the sentence (laughs) I had to remind myself, how you would finish the sentence Britain is dot dot dot, so that is for you everyone to have a we think and a we say to complete your version of that sentence Britain is oh yes so um, towards the end of the show hopefully we'll have a wee bit of time and we can share out at least some of your sen- oh a question can you use sweary words yes Yes, hooray to sweary words in David Bowie's tent. Um, so, uh, yes, um, if you complete the sentence, Britain is, towards the end, if we've got the time, we'll read out at least some of those sentences so everyone's voice will be, well, as most of, many of our voices as possible can be heard. Um, but we will also be putting all of those sentences into David Bowie's guest book, which is going to be put into the National Library um, at, the end of the, at the end of the run of this show, so that will be logged forever. Um, yes, so we've got... Um, is that all I have to say? Yes, I think it is. Right, so to start um, the whole thing off today, I would like to invite um, a, a wonderful singer, um, Wounded Knee, to the stage. Thanks very much. Hello everyone. Um, just to clear up that thing about Bowie and Bowie, um, I can't help thinking of uh, a recording of uh, some kind of Bible Belt church in America denouncing uh, lots of pop artists and stuff as corrupting their children and stuff. So the list, he's kind of reading out this long list, and it's like Devo, Talking Heads, Simple Minds, David Bowie. So there you go, there's your answer. It's neither of those, it's Bowie. Uh, I'm just going to start us off with a song. It's uh, Hamish Henderson's The Flighting of Life and Death. Um, I've come up with one, uh, my own sort of arrangement for the song. Um, I hope I don't cock it up because it's quite a heavy song. But uh, if anybody of you are familiar, it's, a flighting is a Scots word for a kind of literary argument, almost like a literary rap battle. Uh, and Hamish had a few in his time, most famously with Hugh McDermott through the pages of the Scotsman about what folk music means and what folk culture is. But uh, this is a great, a great song. Um, and I haven't written anything specifically about the referendum or anything, but this one for me has come to sort of symbolise quite a lot about the uh, two sides of the divide. And you can judge for yourselves whether uh, who is life and who is death. Oh, day. 
Provocation. Every uh, show we invite a different person to come up and g- give us a wee uh, thought or um, provocation or polemic um, on the day's theme or topic. So I'd like to introduce to the stage um, David Torrance, who is writer, biographer and journalist. David Torrance. Hello, can everyone hear me okay? Yeah. Um, I almost got attacked the other night because uh, an old guy at the back couldn't hear what I was saying and he looked deeply unhappy, which is an unusual phenomenon. Um, Back in 1999, William McIlvaney, the writer, said, having a national identity 
is a bit like having an old insurance policy. You know you've got one somewhere, but often you're not entirely sure where it is, and if you're honest, you'd have to admit you're pretty vague about what the small print says. So that, that to me, pretty much sums up uh, Britishness, uh, the idea of Britain, and indeed could apply to, to many national identities. I think most people would acknowledge that, that Britishness, or the idea of Britain, exists, but if they were asked to pin it down or describe it, uh, suddenly they can't remember which drawer it's in. And as some commentators have recently pointed out in, a, in response to quite clumsy attempts to define it, I'm thinking of Michael Gove and, and Gordon Brown, uh, actually trying to do so is, is terribly un-British. Now the idea of Britain and Britishness actually predates or precedes uh, the Anglo-Scottish Union of 1707. Uh, one historian recently suggested that uh, uh, Scots uh, a millennia ago uh, might even have thought of themselves as true Brits or true Britons. Uh, but as a deliberate state or identity, um, Britishness is firmly associated with 1707 and indeed 1801, uh, the second act of union that everyone seems to have forgotten about. And for all the current talk of civic Scottish nationalism, a, a welcome phenomenon, it's often forgotten, I think, that Britishness was the original civic identity, uh, contrived initi initially to unite under one umbrella the, the people of Wales, England, Scotland, uh, and laterally Ireland, uh, never very successfully in that case, and later extended to the, the peoples of the, the dominions as, as they were and, and the Commonwealth. And Although, of course, it's declined at home and abroad from the, the 1960s onwards, uh, an identity, I think, that was once as strong as that doesn't uh, disappear easily. And today, only Northern Ireland, interestingly, is, has a majority of, of occupants who describe themselves as British, although, of course, they're, they're making a, a political statement. Uh, and today, of course, Australians are generally proud Australians and Canadians are proud Canadians. But curiously, just as it's, it's, it's on the wane, and indeed most surveys show that the vast majority of Scots identify as first and foremost Scottish, the SNP has chosen uh, to embrace Britishness, uh, while at the same time paradoxically arguing that none of the, the present debate is about identity. Uh, so just a decade ago, John Swinney, as SNP leader, was telling the Brits to get off uh, at the SNP conference, a comment I think he now says he regrets. Well, more recently, the SNP MP Pete Wishart predicted that all vestiges of Britishness would go uh, in the event of a yes vote. Now, Pete Wishart uh, claims Britishness could well be enhanced with independence. Alex Salmond admits to having a British aspect to his identity, uh, and Alec Neil says that Scots can still call themselves British following independence. Uh, and last year I was at an, an event uh, conducted under Chatham House rules. I'd dearly love to tell you who said this, but I can't. Uh, but a senior uh, SNP strategist said that even after a yes vote, Scotland would remain a British nation. But although Britishness and the idea of Britain predates the Union, I'm not convinced it, it could endure beyond uh, independence or beyond a yes vote. No one in the Republic of Ireland, for example, still claims to have a British aspect to their identities. That said, even if Scotland votes yes in six weeks' time, uh, enduring will be the British monarchy, uh, the British pound, uh, perhaps even the British Broadcasting Corporation. Uh, so when even the main driver of independence is committed to retaining all those things, uh, in response to the, 
the question, whatever happens to the idea of Britain? Well, I think the idea of Britain has uh, curiously been requisitioned by the Scottish National Party. Thanks very much. Thank you very much, David. Um, so David's going to join um, uh, some other folk up on the stage in just a minute. Um, we're going to have a panel, which we do again every single show, on the theme of that day. And to host that panel, I'd like to introduce the playwright, Peter Arnott. Hello, thank you. Uh, I'd like to ask uh, the, the panel to join me on the stage. Uh, we have, um, I'll introduce them and then, uh, then ask them all on. Uh, I'm going to start at, uh, at this end. We have uh, James Robertson, the wonderful, uh, one of the best of the, of the current crop of Scottish novelists. Um, uh, uh, the standout books being The Testament of Gideon Mack and, and The Land Lay Still, which are uh, wonderful things, but also the star of a very fine video, which you have to Google, um, called, well, called And Now the News from Where You Are, which is extremely funny, and I really recommend it. So uh, that's good. James, if I could ask you to join me here. Um, thank you. Uh, next, we have uh, Isabel Lindsay of w w Women for Independence, but uh, a, a veteran campaigner, I think it would have to be said, uh, uh, for CND. Uh, I'm a vice chair of CND. Are you still vice chair of CND in Scotland? There you are, you see, still fighting away for that one. Um, and uh, also has stood as an, as an SNP candidate, but has also. Uh, but, uh, but there's, but, and there's a, also teaches sociology, so I'm sure there's something, something about British society and, uh, and Scottish. So, Isabel, if you could join me. <laughs> uh, I'm going to ask David to come and sit here as well. That, 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 uh, now, David, uh, that was a, obviously a depressingly um, well-argued and well-thought-out argument um, for, um, for the, to begin this discussion. Um, so we'll have to we'll have to ask you to be more provocative later on, I think. Um, but, uh, but but David is one of the most articulate and intelligent voices on the No campaign. Uh, um, but uh, is not strictly speaking a campaigner, uh, I suppose. But as a skeptic, as a professional skeptic, I think a skeptic of it, but a, a skeptic of independence dreams. So I'm hopefully going to uh, provoke a little provo provocation from David. So please join me. <clears throat> Uh, next we have uh, Andrew Tikal, also known online as the Lallans Pete Warrior, which has been very precisely worked through. He's a man of great precision of language. He's a, a constitutional scholar and a lawyer, and uh, despite this, is a very nice man. Um, so, if, Andrew, if you can come and join me on this side. Uh, and uh, finally, I must admit, uh, to be rather thrilled uh, by our last guest, uh, 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 just, I have to say that he's been part of my mental furniture uh, ever since I knew what a chair was. Um, Neil Asherson uh, wrote for the for Sunday Times pre Murdoch for uh, for the Observer. You know, did not never Sunday Times at all. No. Oh, never. Oh, never, never mind. But, the, but, 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 but he was a founder member, of, I, I think it, you were certainly there, Jim Sillers talks about you being there with the first discussions of the foundation of the Scottish Labour Party uh, that, that, and in 1976, way before that, um, has written on the on history of Africa and of, uh, and of Eastern Central Europe, um, is, and his book Stone Voices um, on Scotland, um, on reflections on Scottishness and on the devolution campaign in 79 and in 97, is one of the key texts I would say, uh, for this debate. And a new edition is coming out, by the way, of Stone Voices, so you should all get hold of that. Uh, I'm thrilled, Neil Asherson, ladies and gentlemen.
we have a slightly technologically um, uh, poverty here. David Bowie has not supplied us with radio mics, unfortunately. Um, so we're going to be passing two handheld mics between us. This will mean the conversation will have to be polite. So could, could I please have the microphone? Thank you very much indeed. No, you can't have the microphone. I'm making a point. So, um, uh, so uh, uh, this one, this one will pass along this way. Uh, but what I'd like to do is to start uh, the, the the title from um, uh, in, in uh, comes of the today's debate comes from David Bowie's song "Star" on Ziggy Stardust, and this has the line "Bevan tried to change the nation." And I wonder if we could start with, um, and maybe uh, we'll start with James. I think. Um, if I can ask everyone to reflect on an idea of Britishness that's specific to post-war. Because again, I think there's, a, there's an awful lot of stuff happening right now about the First World War, a kind of reclamation of an idea of Britishness as that horrendous act of mass murder, which I think is an extraordinary thing to, try, to want to try and do. They've been watching Downton Abbey far too much, I think. Um, so, you know, as the, the idea of restoring Britain to its wonderful pre-democratic past. Um, so I was wondering, uh, the, the, but the, the idea of Britain has meant the most to me, and I think to friends of mine in London and elsewhere, especially people um, from, uh, who, are, who are not white, for example, but the, the value of Britishness for them is the Britain that Bevan tried to define. And I think that, and I'd ask people to, maybe to, to ask James to, to reflect on that, first of all, about what, what Britain means to you. Uh, thank you very much. Um, Certainly in the post-war period, Britain, for me, the last great fling of, of Britishness to me was the, the, the Labour government from 45 to 50, which was before I was born, uh, which I think set up an alternative kind of way of being British, which was the creation of the, the National Health Service and the welfare state and so on. Um, and it seems to me that, that that moment was the moment at which the breakup of Britain might have been delayed, or in fact was delayed, because there was something still there for people to get hold of that they felt um, were, were values that they, that they really wanted to, to see developed and strengthened. But we've seen since the uh, 1980s uh, a, a constant dismantling of that, that welfare state. And even now, it looks as though, uh, certainly south of the border, the, the National Health Service is, is being dismantled and, and, and privatised by stealth, if not, uh, not up front. Um, so to me, the, the, that is the last vestige of Britishness that I particularly want to hang on to. And, and, and I think it's interesting what David said, that, that in a weird kind of way, this referendum is about... Um, you could argue that the, the referendum on Scottish independence is about actually trying to hang on to those last good bits of Britishness, but I think they're fast disappearing, certainly south of the border. I'd like to bring in Neil on that, because I think perhaps the, the sensation that you're describing, James, is not so much that Scotland is leaving, as that Scotland is being left. I wonder if that rings a bell with you. Well, I think there's no doubt about the decline of Britishness but then you have to argue and uh, ask yourself what exactly we mean by it. Um, I mean, the question of people holding a British identity or considering that they have one clearly changed enormously in the past 25 years, and this is a decline. But I agree with James very much that, you know, there was a moment when Gordon Brown suddenly embarked on this uh, search for identity and values, British, you know, and... Uh, he said, before he, in my view, went right off the tracks, he said, uh, the thing to be patriotic about is the National Health Service. And there, you know, that was right. 
and in a sense he was talking about an achievement which was genuinely British. I and mean, if you ask this sort of essentialist question which historians hate, which is, when was Britain? And you can answer that in different ways. I would say Britain was, and I say was, Britain was at exactly this terrific moment of the post-war social settlement and of which the NHS, the National Health Service, was the supreme achievement. And what it means is that in demolishing that settlement, you are demolishing Britishness and what remains of it. And you're demolishing also, of course, the, the uh, motives for those who would like to stay within it. it. Britishness then becomes transparent and unreal and begins to fall apart like the threads of an old coat which is worn out. Um, I think that's most of what I want to say, but th another question is whether Britishness ever existed, whether you could talk about a nation called Britain. And I don't think that was ever possible. It is part of the English specific confusion between state and nation, which still persists, although it is now beginning to coalesce. The people in England are beginning to think of themselves as a nation and to examine the possibility of nationhood in a different way and their sense that uh, of Britishness as being an alternative is sinking away, so thinking is going on. Did it ever exist? Yes. Uh, in a sense, there was a thing called Homo Britannicus, you see, which all empires do, all multinational empires develop this. Uh, there was a Homo Sovieticus, you know, uh, who was the same, although looking absolutely different physically and ethnically, from the Pacific right through to the Baltic, that was Homo Sovieticus, and also there was a Homo Britannicus, who was what has been called the British gentleman. So that you had this extraordinary ruling figure who had the same accent, wore the same clothes, read the same books, had the same sort of, you know, perhaps I was going to say had the same sort of wife, but that's a kind of <laughs> mean, sexist thing to say. But anyway, uh, the sort of person who always who suddenly popped out wearing trees and said, can I help you? you know, and this figure was absolutely recognizable culturally, unified from one end, certainly, of the British Isles to the other, but also happened to rule and minister most of the empire. And that person, that Homo Britannicus, was a national phenomenon. He was culturally British. So a British culture, in that sense, did exist for a time. But now, well, of course, that figure, the gentleman, still exists. but he had been gradually, progressively evicted from power and hegemony. So that's all I want to say at this point. <laughs> that was pretty good, Neil. That was all right. Um, <laughs> the, um, I, 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 as, a, as, a, as a British gentleman, I would like to bring in Isabel at this point. Um, but uh, but has... Because as a long-time campaigner for, for many issues with an international focus as well as a national one, um, has Britishness ever meant anything to you? Uh, not much, and 
I, I think the others have really been rather generous. Uh, I was born during the war, and my political awareness really developed, I did start early, in the, in the 1950s. Now, yes, in the 1950s, uh, we had still the welfare state. It was so popular, the politicians couldn't touch it, couldn't undermine it. But what else did we have? We had uh, very wealthy, upper-class men running the country. Does this sound familiar? Um, we had a lot of dirty, nasty wars. We had Suez, we had the war in Kenya, the appalling behaviour in the war in Kenya, in Malaya. Um, we had a very powerful, well-networked British establishment, which was much more corrupt than we knew at the time. You know, the Profumo and case and all kinds of things that have emerged later really lifted the curtain just a little bit on many of the things that were going on and the ghastly metropolitan police at the time and all these kinds of things. We had a society which was so deferential and that was so actively promoted. And guess what? Uh, the coronation, the shoving monarchy down our throats, uh, the, the class-ridden nature of the BBC at the time. Now, that was the Britain I grew up with politically. And jump to today, what do we have? We have wealthy upper-class men running the country. We have a very powerful establishment, now so money-dominated, uh, running things. How much corruption is there? Well, we have certainly seen it, still looking at what's come out with the Leveson inquiry and uh, the bank collapses and so many other things. So things certainly have changed a bit, but a lot of them have changed for the worse because now we have a really nasty, aggressive inegalitarianism. We have the rich who are out of control and who are determined to keep their position and rub the noses of the poor and the weak in it. So yes, things have deteriorated. Our only hope is to get out of it, to do our own thing, and then things will happen in England. England will not remain as it is because it will create a whole turmoil and debate and we hope there will be the, uh, the, the influence of a good example. I, I, I feel honour bound to, to, to wear my British hat after this extraordinary. I mean, uh, um, uh, this this um, uh, attack on the idea of Britain is the idea of Britain. Uh, David, I'm going to bring you in. Are, are there are inherent paradoxes in the idea of Britain? Because Britain, to a Labour Party loyalist, for example, would be the the, the, the British state has been the means whereby. Uh, people have been lifted out, but, but it was a Secretary of State for Scotland, not a Prime Minister of Scotland, who, um, Arthur Johnson, who lifted um, Scot the, 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 the beginnings of, 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 of breaking down poverty. Is, is, there a, is there still a case to be made that, 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 that Britain can be a force for progressive change in the world? Yeah, and I, I'm slightly mystified by James and Neil sort of almost conflating the idea of Britishness with the welfare state, because Britishness... Uh, precedes the welfare state quite significantly. And indeed, if you dig into the history, there were significant social reforms initiated by all parties in the, in the 20s and 30s, which made significant advances. The NHS and the welfare state post-war can be seen as a sort of natural culmination of that. Um, and at the same time, I dig into SNP history a lot, and I'm still keen for, for the other panellists to address, I think, my key point in the provocation 
that the SNP have embraced Britishness. You know, everything you've said is all very interesting, but the main driver of independence doesn't seem to agree with you on, on this point. So I'd be intrigued to, to hear what you said about that. Um, but the SNP history is quite illuminating. Again, on the welfare state, the SNP's first uh, breakthrough was in the, the Motherwell by-election in 1945. Robert McIntyre unexpectedly won a by-election then. Uh, and McIntyre wasn't keen on the NHS or the welfare state. He saw this as, as the state encroaching into territory uh, where it didn't belong. And even five years later, uh, John McCormick, who won a rectorial battle at Glasgow University, read his rectorial address. He is not at all keen on the nanny state. He's deeply suspicious of the state extending its reach in, in, in welfare and health and education uh, and so on. He was very, a, very much a small state uh, nationalist. So I don't think you can conflate Britishness with the welfare state because it, it implies a much tidier and, and cleaner relationship than I think actually exists. Uh, I think it would be fair to say you can't conflate um, Britain and the welfare state anymore. Um, could I, could I br um, bring in Andrew at this point uh, to perhaps to, to respond? Yeah. I, I recently met uh, uh, an NCO, an ancient drunken NCO in a pub in Glasgow, a, a character to be sure, and I asked him why he was voting no in the independence referendum. And the first reason he gave me was that he didn't want some fucker from Inverness deciding about his life. Um, true quote, didn't make that up. Um, but once I'd shrugged away my mystification with his answer. He proceeded to ask me, are, are you English? I said, I'm not English, but I was with an English person. He said, I don't want this man to be a foreigner. I don't want this man to be a foreigner. And he kept on asking that through his fog of alcohol and confusion. And I think um, I was struck most of all by the fact that as a cybernat myself, as a, as a Scottish nationalist, I don't really feel British at all. Um, and we've ha had voices here which feel quite comfortable not feeling British. I actually feel anxious about not feeling British because it means that that drunken NCO, I didn't understand where he was coming from. I couldn't get into a mindset which understood why those ancient ties and allegiances were important for him. And I think there is a risk on the yes side of an argument if we don't understand and to some extent be respectful about where people are coming from. If we just say that a pith-helmeted, not an NCO, but some much higher caste guy from Edinburgh who sounds as if he's from Surrey who's ordering around some hapless coolies and shooting tigers you know if that if we think about British in those terms then we won't understand it in the totally banal way that many people feel British and I don't feel British at all but I think the really interesting thing about the SNP positioning on Britishness and some of it is grossly unconvincing the idea that Pete Wisher or Alex Neil feel British is ridiculous laughable but I'm not so sure about someone like Andrew Wilson who probably does feel that way so I think it's actually it's a welcome sign of empathy in, in a debate which frequently on this constitutional question is not characterised by its empathy or its understanding. So we should try and listen to the drunken old soldier. That's my view anyway. I was going to ask uh, uh, James, especially because uh, as, a, as, a, as an author, you've been doing public events um, um, around uh, the country. I mean, d do because I've, I've been moved, actually. In some ways, I was quite moved. Even if David Bowie's... Um, I'm sorry, Bowie, as, as the referendum had it. Um, uh, his uh, intervention was, was a little, perhaps, perhaps a little ill-judged, a little clumsy. I didn't feel insulted by it. I felt that there, there, there is a residual affection which is being hurt. And, that, and I think it's wrong to dismiss that um, personally. And I wonder, I wonder if you had any thoughts on that. 
Well, one of the things that I find myself saying to my... I have many friends who are English, <laughs> I should say. I, I should actually say, by the way, that like, I, I don't feel uh, in the least bit British, but I was actually born in the south of England and spent my first six years of my life there. So um, there's something interesting going on there that uh, in spite of that uh, geographical birth and so on, I, I don't feel in the least bit British and, and never have uh, from the age of six or seven. But, but what I say to friends in England who've have, who've expressed that sense of hurt which I think is legitimate and real, is if you lived in Scotland, I suspect that you would also be yes voters because these are people who are progressive thinkers who don't like what is happening uh, uh, emanating from the, the, the Westminster government. They don't like what is happening to their society. They are worried about the fact that uh, increasingly uh, London in the southeast, uh, uh, London in particular, is, is a sort of city-state that has very little to do with the rest of the British Isles. And I think one of the interesting arguments about what's going on in a referendum at the moment is is to make us think about actually is the real border uh, between Carlisle and Newcastle, or is it actually a border that's much further south that surrounds this very very um, uh, different kind of place? I don't think. I don't think that, that that discussion about where the border really sits actually in any way negates the, the importance of this referendum. I think it actually enhances it and highlights it. Uh, but I think that's a, a really important debate to, to be had. Um, but as I said, what I tend to say to, to people who feel that hurt is actually, yes, partly it's not so much that we want to leave you as, as we feel that we have been left by uh, what has happened to the British state. But also, if you lived here, you would probably feel the same way that we do. I'm afraid we only have five minutes left, so can I just bring in David very quickly and then Neil? Then anyone just jump in very quickly. Just responding to that point, James, what then was the argument for independence in 1945 or 1950, which I referenced earlier? When you had a Labour government elected by Scotland, you had a welfare state. Very, very, very quickly. I don't think you can actually predicate what's happening now on a by-election in 1945, uh, where actually the other, the other main parties didn't even stand. I mean, that was, well, yeah, but I mean, you know, that's 60 years ago now. A lot of things have happened since then. Yes, can I say the real, the real start of modern Scottish nationalism was the late 1960s. And let us remember, on this question of Scots and being strangers in your own country and all these kinds of things. Let us remember that was at the end of a decade in which Scotland had a net loss of 390,000 people through immigration from a population base of 5 million. The Scots have been used to people, their friends, their relatives living in different countries, and some English have. And what what year did you join the SNP? I'm afraid we, we, have, we have time for your in-depth forensics. We're going, to have, we're going to give Neil the last word. Thank you. My very last word is this. I am after. a drunken old soldier. <laughs> because, you know, uh, look, no independence is achieved without loss. We shouldn't ever pretend that it is. And, you know, I, uh, my father was in the Royal Navy from the age of 13 to the day he died. I was in the Royal Marines, and yes, it hurts. Uh, it hurts to look at the white ensign and think, that's not mine anymore. And uh, that is a price which I'm entirely ready to pay. But let's not pretend that that sort of thing doesn't hurt 
some people. Some people not. I've put this people to point to people that you know I've met along the way, and they say, I just don't get it. Why? Why do you care about the navy or the marines or something? What's that? You know. But this is the sort of thing which does matter. All I'm saying is there are no passions and emotions which should be respected. Uh, there are others which are ignoble and lazy and cowardly, but there are some which deserve respect. That's a fantastic note to end the discussion on. Um, we will be carrying on the conversation in, in the bar afterwards if anyone wants to come along. So, But thank you very much, uh, Neil, um, Andrew, uh, James, uh, Isabel and David. Thank you very much indeed. Fantastic. Right, so what I, we're moving on now to something that's slightly different. and um, We're going to invite to the stage a poet who last year won the Festival of Politics Poetry Prize. So I'd like to invite to the stage a poem, uh, a poem from Jim Monaghan. Uh, thank you. Uh, I, I know we're, we don't need to declare uh, what we're doing in September, but uh, I'm a, a yes voting uh, member of the Labour Party. Who, who, uh, but, but, but I must stress, not a member of Labour for Independence, which makes me equally hated across all social media. <laughs> uh, I've chosen a couple of short poems uh, that hopefully re re reflect uh, the theme. The first is a, a poem about my hometown, uh, Cumnock. Uh, if you don't know where Cumnock is, it's roughly uh, the midway point between East Belfast and the late 1970s, <laughs> some, somewhere in there. And if, uh, and, as, as if to underline that, this year the headline act at Cumnock Music Festival was Marmalade. And, uh, and not because of a string of hits in the 70s, because someday in the committee thought, Marmalade, that'll be the orange version of the jam, we'll just uh, we'll book them. Uh, true that's no true, actually. Uh, but, but Cumnock, uh, when it lost its industry, it's a story of my hometown, but it's also a story of, of many towns. Uh, things have to fill the gap, and, and the socialism and solidarity that I was brought up with, uh, uh, was the gap was filled by sectarianism, and uh, coal was replaced as the major industry uh, by heroin. So this is the uh, United Colours of Cumnock. Uh, and I apologise in advance for the swearing, but if you've ever been in Cumnock, you know it's quite necessary. <laughs> my town is a green town. But it's not like a fuck the Queen green town. It's a tree in every scene town with gardens freshly dug. That's green that pours through every crack, through pavements, viaducts, fit by parks, where men who suffer heart attacks go walks with three-legged dogs. My town is a blue town. A who the fuck are you town? What school did you go to town and are you one of us? That's blue that seeps through doors and walls, through pubs and bookies, village halls, where men would guard old Derry's walls instead of guarding us. My town was once a red town, another minor dead town, a men who fought and bled town with brave and stalwart wives. That's red that came from meeting rooms, for folk that worked the pumps and looms when borough bands played different tunes and we marched for better lives. But now my town's a grey town, a 50 mils a day town, a watch life slip away town, a tunnel we need light, grey that weeps for dying eyes, Bewildered parents, children's cries with skinny arms and stick-like thighs and knee strength left to fight. Thanks.
Thank you. Um, uh, just a second short poem, which is about uh, more about the idea of Scottishness than Britishness. Uh, something, but so obviously you can't look at one without looking at the other. Uh, I don't feel particularly Scottish or British. I just happen to have been born in a place. My partner has uh, dual nationalities, and none of them are British or Scottish. So, uh, but this is a poem. I had to switch off the telly in July because I couldn't face that question that was in your face every time you stick the question we've all got to face and it's not going to answer to September that main question that was coming on the telly every minute in July uh, and the question that lies in the hands unfortunately of one uh, particularly kind of impudent and arrogant man uh, the question of course being will Scotland ever qualify for another World Cup finals ever again the man being Gordon Strachan this is called Joke Tamsin Gims. <laughs> Scottish Fitba's in the dock. It seems that we're a laughing stock of Europe. No longer will we see the day when the likes of Cooper, Hansen, Paul McStay, Baxter, Johnson, Dennis Law, the artists of the Tanner Ball will grace the greatest stage on earth to show the world what we are worth. But as our team face many tankings and slips further down the FIFA rankings, <laughs> Maybe we should ponder whether this list of heroes even ever played together. I mean, it was the McNeil that lifted up the 1966 World Cup. Four years later, we didn't even go to the classic finals in Mexico. But then I'm sure that David Hume did not meet Irvine Welsh or Walter Scott. James Macmillan never will debate with Peden. But it's the same for Poland and the same for Sweden. For Marie Curie never got a call for Copernicus or Pope John Paul. So... I know we like to greet and whinge and exercise the Scottish cringe, but let's face it, just like me, small nations, we sometimes rise above our station. So don't mope when it doesn't go our way. Rejoice when the wee dog has its day. We've I been mediocre. We've never been great. But let's enjoy and celebrate the times, the beautiful times, when we punch above our weight. Thank you. That was Jim Monaghan, everyone. Thanks, Jim. So before we move on to our last few um, items for today, or things we're going to do today, I just want to remind you about your own task to complete the sentence, Britain is. If you've got a wee piece of paper or a pen to complete that sentence, after the next um, wee sharing, um, we're going to collect them up and hopefully share them out if we've got time. So um, most of the shows we're doing, um, we've asked people from around the world um, to to give us a wee message from wherever they are. And so today we've got a letter from Cairo by Sarah Shara, Hello. (laughs) Uh, I'm quite nervous because everyone is so eloquent and politically savvy and I'm not. Uh, I'm from Cairo, uh, but I'm based here in Scotland. I chose Scotland as my home. Um, And here's my letter. Dear Scotland, the first time I ever left Cairo, the first time I left home, For no particular reason, I ended up in Edinburgh studying theatre. That was three years ago. Since then, I I visited Cairo exactly five times. The first time I visited was in December 2011. The Supreme Council of Armed Forces had taken power, and days before I landed, my friends were sending me texts from Tahrir talking about how the army was using new tear gas that was causing people to collapse and faint, vomit, and spit out black stuff. That was also when the Battle of Muhammad Mahmoud happened. That was also when the Blue Bra incident happened. 
The second time I went was a year later for my friend Osman's wedding in 2012. My friends had stopped going to demos by now, exhausted and demoralized. By then, Egypt was being ruled by the Muslim Brotherhood. The electricity cuts had begun to increase. There was barely any fuels in the country. President Morsi had proclaimed himself pharaoh of Egypt above law and constitution, and when people demonstrated, the now infamous mob rapes of Tahrir had begun. People were frustrated and confused. Those who talked politics were only searching for someone to blame, and for the most part, everyone I knew just didn't want to talk about it anymore. The third time I visited was a few months later, in May, for my cousin Lina's wedding. The spirit had, evol had evolved into some sort of acceptance of the situation. The queues for petrol were much longer, the electricity cuts were much more frequent, and everyone was preparing for the protests of 30th of June. I was there on the 30th of June. I told a group of friends I'll be tagging along with them, and they responded, sure, but we need to try this new restaurant for lunch first, and then we'll go to the demonstration. They weren't urgent anymore. The relaxed atmosphere around the whole situation demonstrated that people had lost their faith in taking to the streets. A few days before I left, Morsi was ousted by the Egyptian army. The fourth time I visited was in October, the same year, 2013. The massacre of Morsi supporters in Rabat Square had already occurred, and a curfew had been imposed. Unlike the curfew of 2011, where the streets still belonged to the people and everyone stayed out and up whenever they wanted, this curfew was a lot more severe. I arrived as the fever of all-night curfew parties had died down and the depression of being locked up in your own city had taken hold. My friends had ta stopped talking about politics since you could only be belong to one of the two binaries then, Morsi supporters and religious fascism, or Sisi, General Sisi and military slash national fascism. I use that word, that's my own description. And the last time I visited Cairo was in May of 2014. The major difference I noticed was a divide wasn't of religion or class or the same usual things anymore. It was a division of generations. The older generation, the parents, the aunts, the uncles, would not stop scolding and insulting and criticizing the youth of Egypt. Every single one of them would constantly point out how the youth have ruined the country, brought nothing but strife. You're never satisfied, you're always complaining, you cause trouble, we should have never let you go to Tahrir. In a family gathering once, while I was there, they asked me, so what are you working on in Scotland? And I told them, I'm writing a play about sexual harassment in Egypt. Immediately, one of my older cousins went, that doesn't happen here. That doesn't happen, you guys are always complaining. I don't know why everyone's making such a fuss about it. Her brother-in-law immediately added, and all those mob rapes that happen in Tahrir, those are thugs paid by the anti-sexual anti -sexual harassment campaign in order to legitimize what they're doing. These are voluntary campaigns, they don't get paid by anyone. So, sorry. Um, and this crazy list of comments went on and on and on. Even old friends who said that they were supporting Sisi for president were telephoned by aunts in the US in order to be scolded over and over and over again for being young. They've had enough of the youth, they've had enough of their crazy requests. 
We were better off just living with Mubarak. You ruined us with your crazy antics. Now Morsi's gone, and we're not gonna allow you to ruin anything again. Everything was all right as it was. All right being that 40% of the population is illiterate. All right being that 60% live below poverty line. All right being that people can be beaten to death by the police if they refuse to show their national IDs. All right being that people can be kidnapped, imprisoned, and tortured in police custody for no reason other than looking suspicious. All right being that all women have to endure day-to-day -day sexual harassment. All right being the treated of all non-Sunni Muslim communities as second-class citizens. And the list goes on and on and on and on. This older generation blamed the youth for the downfall of Egypt primarily because of the election of the big bad wolf, Morsi. The reason Morsi won wasn't because of anything other than fear. Everyone who voted in the presidential election of 2012 voted out of fear. All they thought was about how are they gonna vote in the most strategic way so that Morsi doesn't win? How are they gonna vote so they don't get fucked? From the first referendum to the last election, people in Egypt only voted out of fear. And now, we're back to a military state, led by someone who defended the virginity tests forced upon female protesters in Tahrir in 2011. Young revolutionaries are being imprisoned for protesting against the new anti-protest law. They have become the number one enemy. They are the biggest threat. And they are that because they had the courage to dream. When I tell people in Egypt that I will be voting in the Scottish referendum, first, they jolt up in terror as they check in on the word referendum and completely ignore the word Scottish. <laughs> what referendum? We're not having another one, are we? This time, I swear I'm not gonna bother with it. When their mini panic attack is over, I repeat the sentence and they give me a confused look and they go, why? It's the same why I got when I told them I'm getting my master's in Edinburgh. It's the same why I got when I decided to come live here instead of go back. Why Scotland? Why not come back to Egypt? The reason I chose Scotland was because I had never experienced the amount of genuine support and guidance I found here. I tell them that one day I will come back to Egypt, but I still have a lot to learn. And Scotland has been very nurturing. It's the only place where I realize there's no space, that there is space, sorry, to fail and to grow from that, and that it's all part of the process. It's the first place where I heard the sentence, I don't know if this is gonna work, but we're gonna find out. And from my experience, that is a very, very rare quality to have. So when I tell my friends in Egypt, they smile and they say, that's great, and I can tell they have no idea what I'm talking about. But believe me, believe me, if they had the energy to think about it and to be jealous of the opportunity that Scotland now has, they would be really happy for me right now. Thank you. Sarah Sharawi, everyone. Thank you, Sarah. So um, in a, we're going to finish up with a song in a minute. But before that, um, if you've got your sentences, if you've got them written, if you want to push, push them to the sides, actually, of the... Um, what are they called? Rows, cues, what, what, whatever you, what you're sitting in.
While David is collecting the sentences, I'm going to let you know what everyone who you've heard um, speak today is up to in the next wee while so that you can check what, out what they're doing. Peter Arnett has a play on called Janis Joplin Full Tilt on at the assembly in Bisto. Uh, Bisto? Yes. Bristol, <laughs> Bristol Place, um, where, where the old Forest Cafe was. Um, Andrew Tickell, um, he blogs at Leyland, Leyland's Peace, Lalland, sorry, Lalland's Pete Warrior. Warrior as in to worry, as in anxious, not as in rar. Um, so that's, that's Andrew Tickell. Um, James Robertson, he has, he'll be speaking at the book festival and he's launching um, the Professor of Truth at the book festival. Uh, Neil Aitchison, uh, sorry, um, his, he has a revised edition of his book, which, um, which Peter spoke about, um, Stolen Voices, that's available. Stolen Voices! Sorry, my apologies, Neil. Stone Voices. So there's a new edition of that. Um, David Torrance is also going to be at the Book Festival on the 16th of this uh, month at 4.30, talking about federalism. If anyone wants to head along to that, it'll be interesting. Um, Isabel Lindsay, when I asked her what she, what she, what she wants us to plug she, what she's doing, she said, well, I'll be doorstepping right up into the referendum. So look forward to seeing... <laughs> Uh, Isabel Lindsay knocking on your doors um, anytime soon and also she's um, connects with um, or runs um, Women, for Women for Independence um, also uh, Jim Monaghan he's currently writing a play with Fatima Ugin Eugen, um, on a, uh, which is a music hall music um, music hall musical about the match girl strike and Wounded Knee who I'm going to invite up in a moment he is also uh, performing in a, a piece a musical piece that he has created um, with um, a collective of other musicians and it's absolutely brilliant I've seen it myself um, you should all go along and it's called And Blithely Spent the Gaudi Gowden Day and uh, sorry Blythe and Blythely spent the Gowden Day and it's at the Storytelling Centre on the 12th 13th and 14th of this month as part of the Made in Scotland programme and it's a song cycle inspired by the Pentlands in Edinburgh it's beautiful so we've got some sentences shall we read some okay so the people speak uh, Britain is a night bus in London Britain is better than most of the people here today think it is. Britain, Britain isn't. Britain is a geographical expression. Britain is a hegemonic mon monster that has long outlived its usefulness for the great majority of its ordinary working people. And final one, can I give you them back? Britain is so 19th century. <laughs> Thank you all. There's loads here. Thank you so much. Just so that you know, all of those will be going into um, David Bowie's guest book and they will be in the National Library of Scotland, um, kept there forever. Um, yes, sorry, I didn't mention that. Yeah, so it will be. Um, read out in the podcast. Thank you all so much. We'll finish off with a song from Wounded Knee. Thank you, everyone. Thanks very much. Hope you've enjoyed yourselves today. Uh, I'm going to do another Hamish Anderson song, uh, another of my own arrangements, but it's for, uh, for the Freedom Kamoi. Um, 
which Neil Ashton writes about very well in his Stone Voices in one of his essays, just about what it means and what it stands for and why people sing it and things. And, but uh, my arrangement's based on an old reggae tune by Augustus Pablo called Eastman Sound. <laughs> Bends, oh, Adam, will find bread 
follows all the barkers do And an Arab lad beyond Gaza Things that fell gallows o' the barkers do Just to say that um, conversations will be... Thanks, Drew. Sorry. <laughs> Just wanted to touch you. Um, <laughs> uh, the conversation will be continuing outside in the bar. I think there's the brown bar that we head towards out there, the bar brown cafe, if anyone wants to join anyone for a chat. And also, I omitted one final plug, which is Sarah Shaharawi has her first play, Day One, coming up later on this year somewhere in Scotland, and um, which is about um, women living in Egypt. So keep an eye out for that. Thank you to our whole our panel and our guests. Thank you all for coming to All Back to Bowie's. Uh, see you later. Um, these are the audience sentences for show five. The question we asked was to complete the sentence, Britain is. There's a lot of them, so it'll take a bit of time. This is what our audience thought Britain is. Britain is not something to be proud of. Britain is not just a national health service. Britain is past. Britain is an outdated concept. Britain is not great. Britain is divided. Britain is so 19th century. Britain is not part of Scotland's future. Britain is a load of my bollocks. Britain is schizophrenic. Britain is a concept past its sell-by date. Britain is living off former glories. Britain is defunct. Britain is already divided, a nation changing. Britain is a hegemonic monster that has long outlived its usefulness. Britain is a geographical expression. Britain isn't. Britain is better than most of the people here think it is. Britain is a night bus in London. Britain is changing. Britain is great. Britain is okay. Britain is possibly no longer going to exist as Scotland becomes independent. Britain is cracking up. Britain is tired. Britain is a geographic entity, not a state you can be separated from. Britain is morally bankrupt, and Scottish socialism is the only way forward. Britain is a class-divided society. Britain is an outmoded construct of empire, a geographical description of an island, not an entity or a cohesive state. 
Britain is a patchwork, a patchwork quilt, memory of memories of past greatness, reforms and everyday kindness and fun, suppressed evidence of cruel, greedy imperialism, tolerance of arrogance, selfishness, full of beauty still, but also beastliness. Britain is on its last legs. Britain is over. Britain is a practical and comfortable roof for different nations which are independent of identity. Britain is a hodgepodge of bickering cousins tied unwillingly by their past, yet fearful of their future alone. Britain is an island. Great Britain is unequal. Britain is... Uh, I can't read that. Scotland is like a kaleidoscope. Oh, Scotland is. I don't know why that's there. Britain is better divided. Britain is temporarily incapable of socialism and therefore injurious to me and mine. Britain is a work in progress. Britain is the remnant of an old empire. Britain is swinging scarily to the right. Britain is broken. Britain is obsolete. Britain is no longer the foreign power it thinks it is. Britain is not England. Britain is not a democracy. Britain is a dead place. Britain is fucked. Britain is going to be a friendly, wonderful place when it is an alliance of interdependent nations. Britain is no longer great. Who will turn out the lights? Britain is the most unequal nation in Europe. Britain is going down the pan. Britain has been stolen by the South East and London. <coughs> Excuse me. So that's that. Thanks very much. Uh, more sentences tomorrow. <laughs>